when you go to Zephaniah, it answers some questions for us that are being asked today. The first one is Jesus really coming back. I saw a meme that was on the Internet. We talked about that. Uh, Keith talked about a little bit how the Internet's like amazing. Uh, everything can turn into anti-God very quickly. I, I even did a thing on how to fix my toilet. Kid you not, how to fix my toilet. And it was a video on YouTube. And on there, uh, somebody, after, you know, like 35 different comments of how things can work a little different, somebody said, praise the Lord, it worked. And then right after that, it was like the anti-God storm just hit. He was like, how dare you bring your religion into this? This is plumbing. And then it just got this battle. It was like the holy war. It, anything. This is the age that we are at. And, and there was this meme that I found on there that was, uh, um, people are putting it on their, um, their, their lawns and stuff too. Uh, and my sister even saw one. It's a picture of Jesus carrying a cross, which it seems, you know, like this should be reminding us of what he's done for us. But instead, it says, get over it. He's not coming back. It's been 2000 years. And when people in our country are putting it up on their lawns and they're putting this on their, their things, it lets you know that we live in an age where they think that there is no that God doesn't care. Jesus isn't coming back. Now, we know better. Zephaniah knows better. And he answers this question. Yes, he's coming back. And when he comes, there will be consequences for how we've lived our lives. There will be consequences as to where we put our faith. But to answer that question for us, is Jesus coming back? Zephaniah answers that for us. We should live in such a way as we know that he is. The other one is, is God really going to judge? And we look at this world and we see the brokenness in this world. And we see how bad things are happening. We see good people having horrible things happen in their lives and, and righteous people oppressed. And we see wicked people getting all kinds of great things and being seemingly rewarded for their wickedness in this world. And we wonder sometimes, God, are you ever going to do anything about this? Can, is it possible for God to straighten out this world which is so corrupt? And Zephaniah speaks to that question directly. In fact, God speaks to that question directly through Zephaniah. Now, the book starts like this. It says, the Lord gave this message to Zephaniah when Josiah, son of Ammon, was king of Judah. Zephaniah was the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. Now, don't ask me what happened to Cushi. Why did he get such a different name? I don't know. It wasn't his dad's favorite or something. But everybody else gets the ayah names. This... This is important. He is a great grandson of somebody, King Hezekiah. Now, King Hezekiah, as you might recall, uh, just a few generations before this, was the king of Judah when the Assyrians came in and tried to take over Jerusalem. And Hezekiah was a good king. He wasn't perfect. But he was good and he loved the Lord and he sought him. And there was this prophet Isaiah came in and said, you're not going to get taken over. Don't worry about it. And and against all odds, God delivered Jerusalem. And and not only that, this king Hezekiah, he was supposed to die. And he said, I don't want to die. And so God says, all right, I'll give you a few more years to your life. Now, it was unfortunate for everybody else because then he had this son named Manasseh that was born during that time. Manasseh turned out to be one of the most wicked kings of all of Judah, which lets you know sometimes when the Lord wants to take you, just let him take you. Right. You know how bad your kids are going to be. Right. But Hezekiah, good king, powerful. I mean, worked with prophets. God did deliverance through him. I mean, amazing. And here's his great, great grandson. Now, he's also born, there's another king that's mentioned here, and that's Josiah. Josiah was another good king. But he wasn't yet a good king when this book was being written. 
he was a boy king when this book was being written, but it turns out later on in his life, he ends up restoring Israel's faith. He goes into the, the temple and he clears out all the idols and he takes all the, the stuff down and he starts returning the country back to God. He was one of the, he's like one of the greatest kings of Judah, actually the greatest, most faithful king of Judah. And so here's a, here you have this prophet that is preaching. He descended from a great king, preaching to a young king uh, with the potential to be great. And he mentions that. Here's the thing that's also important is that he has his descendants. He has royal blood. He had access to the king's court. And so there's a reason why he mentions these things. And so you can understand where his message was intended to go. And it's important. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. So here's the author, Zephaniah, great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. The year that this was written was 630 B.C. And there's a reason that we know that's what happened. Is It happens when, um, from the events that are being described, one is King Josiah is in there. King Josiah takes office in the year 640. Right? In the year 628, Josiah decides that he's going to start returning things back to God. Now, the things that are described in this book happened before uh, what is, you know, obviously the nation is still in free fall. And uh, Josiah hasn't yet made this transition. And uh, we also hear that there's this, this uh, country called Cush that, uh, that talks about the very end of the book. Um, there's a prophecy against it instead of Egypt. And we know that uh, why wouldn't he mention Egypt? Well, because Cush, for a very short period of time, had taken over the 25th kingdom of, of Egypt and ran that southern area for a very short period of time from about 630 right, till about 625. Uh, uh, okay, there's a little period in there. And then Nico, uh, Pharaoh Nico, ends up taking that area. So you have this short little window. Where this book could have been written. It's about 6.30. And uh, it's pretty amazing. Because it's written at 6.30. 6.28 is when Josiah starts to do the, bring the nation back into faithfulness to God. Now, is it because of this book? Who knows? But here is a guy, there's a prophet that preaches about the end of the world and how bad things are. And you have this young king who has access to this, this prophet, and this prophet has access to him, and all of a sudden, after this book was written, he just happens, the nation turns back to God after being so completely depraved? I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting thought. Now, here's the historical background. King Josiah was on the throne since 640. Assyria was the world power at this time. Now, we've talked for a couple of weeks. There's a lot of prophecies about the end of Assyria, but at this point, Assyria was still the big bad dog in the world. And uh, But... Um, Something that, you, um, that was just beginning to brew at this time was the Babylonians were having a resurgence. They were inside the Assyrian Empire, but they were just beginning to grow a little bit. So the Assyrian stronghold was beginning to, to weaken. Uh, Judah was in spiritual and moral decay. You had uh, Manasseh, and he had a son uh, who was also a horrible king, was then uh, probably assassinated, which left Josiah at eight years of age in charge of the kingdom, which is kind of the state of affairs when this book was written. Now, uh, here's the map of the world as that takes place. It's uh, really Assyria was kind of it was in control of all that land at the time, um, everything that you see. So I didn't draw borders around it because I'd have to make a map bigger and we wanted to look inside of it. But Assyria really did have dominant military control over pretty much everything you see. And all those countries on the inside paid money to the Assyrians. 
But inside of it, there are a couple countries that are listed uh, because they're in this book. And so we won't, we'll come back to them in a little bit. You have Nineveh, you have Jerusalem, Ammon and Moab, you can see where they're at. You have Philistine, the Philistines were on that coast area. And then Cush, which was really over what we call uh, Ethiopia, they were taking over a portion of the Egyptian empire at that time. So that's kind of... That's a real brief thing. Where All right. So here's the outline of the book. I was listening to music while I made this, and REM happened to come on, and I thought, that is this book. It's the end of the world as we know it. That's the first parts of the book. I mean, it talks about the end of the world as we know it. And at the very end, we'll be fine. <laughs> that's kind of how you want to break it up. So if you want to just take that, that's how it is. Um, the purpose, there is threefold, is predict the end, and the end of a lot of things. You have Judah. He's going to protect the end of Judah is predicted there. The end of the world, the actual end of the world, and also the end of brokenness and corruption. He talks about it. There is another purpose of this book, and that is to warn the prideful and the wicked. And that's the purpose of showing us these prophecies, that there is a warning. Judgment is coming, but it's also to encourage the broken and the faithful. For those of us who turn to God and in this world is difficult to be encouraged and to not lose hope and to feel like this world is somehow one. The theme of this book is brokenness. And really, if we'll get back to it, the theme is this. You either come to God broken or he will break you. That's the theme. And so brokenness. All right. We get into it. Um, The very beginning as it starts, the end of the world. As God says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. And uh, that brings back... The imagery of the flood, doesn't it? Uh, we see in, in history, in, in the grand, grand scope of things, God has poured out his wrath, or will pour his wrath, three times. And the first time was the flood. And the last time he talks about in this book, where he says, I'm going to, I'm going to pour out my wrath. And he says, I'm I'm going to destroy everything from the face of the earth. There is a global destruction that is coming. Nothing in this world lasts forever. That's um, it shows that God is going to undo what has been done. And he talks about how he's going to break this world. God's going to break all the things in this world. It begins with that have been corrupted. And he starts with creation itself. And and look at the order of how he does this. He says, I'll sweep away people and animals alike. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. That is the exact opposite of the order of creation and how God made things. He's saying, I'm going to undo creation. It's going to be completely undone. And really, it starts with the real problem, the source of all the problem, which is humans. Right? We mess this place up. We've corrupted it. And so he says he's going to reduce the wicked to heaps of rubble. He's going to wipe humanity from the face of the earth, says God. Creation is going to be destroyed. It's going to be undone, uncreated. And then he's going to break in that our corrupt worship. He says, I'm going to crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist and destroy every last trace of their ball worship. And I'm going to put an end to the idolatrous priests so that even the memory of them will disappear. That God sees that we, we have done in this creation, <laughs> we've messed up the earth, right? We, we, when we sinned, the earth fell apart. We have all the death and destruction. And, uh, uh, well, second law of thermodynamics really happened then when we started falling apart. And then we have also brought into this a, a broken worship. And really, ever since then, humanity has never been united in worshiping the one true God. And 
we've destroyed it. And God says, I'm going to break that. He's also going to break our corrupt governments. He says, on that day of the judgment, says the Lord, I will punish the leaders and princes of Judah and all of those following pagan customs. Now, the actual Greek there, or the Hebrew there talks about this. He says, those that wear the, the, the garments of these other countries. And the idea is this. You have these, these people who they go and they take on the customs of these foreign nations. And remember, Israel was supposed to be set apart in all different kinds of ways, including how they dressed, because God was saying, you guys are different. We want the world to see you're different so you can see that I'm different so people can turn to him. And instead of doing that, they started taking up the, the clothes and the customs of all the rest of the world around them. Israel started taking on the corruption and just mimicking the corruption of the rest of the world. Instead of standing apart for God, they just stood apart from God. And they really did. And God says, I'm going to end this kind of broken government that we have. And, and look at that. Uh, he says the leaders and the judges that are there. This is the, the governments of this world that are there designed to help lead us in righteousness and protect the weak. And to make sure that laws are good and are, 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 are there for, for uh, right purposes and the right kind of thing. We've messed up government big time. And we don't lead ourselves well and we don't follow well. And he's going to undo broken and corrupt government. And then beyond that, he says he's going to end this, this corrupt religion that we have. He says, I will punish those who participate in pagan worship ceremonies and those who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. Now, you're going to miss this a little bit because this is a bad translation. Uh, here's what it says. Instead of participating in pagan worship ceremonies, what it means, what it says there is those that leap over the threshold. And the reason they translate it different is because people don't know what that means. You ever heard a uh, step on a crack? You don't step on a crack, you'll break your mama's back. You remember that? It's like a, a, right? Well, the Philistines had that same kind of thing. They thought if you stepped on the threshold, then it was bad news, right? And so here you have a nation of people who should be worshiping God. What are they doing? They're, they're participating in superstitious things religiously. They're not going to jump, I mean, leap over the threshold, something stupid like that, right? They're, they're just persnickety about those things. But then what do they do? Once they get inside, they do violence. They break God's laws. They have this form of religion, but they don't have a heart change. They're broken to the very core. God says, I want to put an end to that broken religion. And then he says here that he's going to put an end to broken economics. He says, wail and sorrow all you who live in the market areas for the merchants and traders will be destroyed and the economics of this world they're broken and think of how that we use the economy or to to oppress other people and how how money has been used throughout time to gain the wrong kinds of fact in fact jesus said that it was the love of money was the root of all kinds of evil and so the economy is going to be broken and those that look to the economy to be their main thing, well, it's going to be destroyed. Now, he's, now he has his transition from not just breaking the corruption of the institutions that we've messed up in this world, but he also talks about this, that he's going to break the corrupt attitudes that people have. So he moves from the external to the internal things in our very lives that we have. And it says God's going to break the complacent says he's going to search with lanterns in Jerusalem to the darkest corners to punish those who sit complacent in their sins. They think the Lord will do nothing to them, either good or bad. Do we live in a society that's like that? And God says, I love the imagery. It's like he gets a little flashlight out and he goes to all the darkest little corners where people think that they are beyond the view of God. And he's going to find them right there. And these are people that think 
Now, God's there, maybe. I don't care. He's not going to do anything. What has God done? He's not going to do anything good or bad. God's just a non-factor in their thinking. God's a non-factor in their lives. Like, it's just so far beyond that you think, oh, God doesn't even matter. But you know what? You don't have to believe in God for God to exist. And you really don't have to believe in judgment for judgment to come. It's like the person that says, I don't believe in Cadillacs, and then got hit by one. Right? It just happens. So, he's going to find the complacent. And their complacency won't be helpful. And he's going to plunder their houses. He's going to take everything from them and their hopes. That's what it talks about in the rest of that little passage. It also talks about he's going to break the strong. The people who think that they have their own strength, they're going to rely on their own strength to protect them. That's what, you know, we're powerful. And says the terrible day of the Lord is near. Swiftly it comes, a day of bitter tears, a day when even the strong man will cry out. You will not be strong enough to withstand the wrath of God. And the strength that we have, you think that we are strong enough to withstand God as humanity? There have been many times in humanity that we've thought that. Uh, one time, God destroyed us with a flood. Said everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Right? We didn't want to obey God. Said the world's full of corruption and violence because everyone did what they thought was right. right. So we said, we're strong enough. We're going to do what we think is best. And God says, I don't think so. Right? And then the one guy who did what God said got on a boat. There was another time. Not much long after that, we built a tower. God said, go throughout the earth. Be happy. Multiply. Be fruitful. I saved you from the flood. Now go and fill this earth. And what did we do? We got together, built a big city, and said, we're going to build a big tower so we can find God's throne and kick him off of it. We're strong enough. Look what we can do. And what did God do? He took our language away. And we've been just frustrated by that ever since. There is a time coming that our strength will not save us from the wrath of God. And that attitude he's going to break. The uh, third thing he said, he's going to break the secure. He said, there's a day when the Lord's anger will be poured out. A day of terrible uh, distress and anguish. A day of ruin and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and of blackness. Doesn't that sound fun? A day of trumpet calls and battle cries. Down go the walled cities. The strongest of battlements. We in our world think we can shield ourselves and we have forever tried to protect ourselves. Give us security. Sometimes it's through a great military. Sometimes it's through a great economy. Sometimes it's through great relationships that we have. Right. We we try to build security and we shield ourselves. We think we shielded ourselves somehow to be on the reach of God. But if we're not finding our security in him, he's going to change that attitude real quick because there's nothing outside of him. Uh, that is truly secure. Now, the last thing that uh, he talks about there is he's going to he's going to dis- going to destroy the wealthy. That attitude, like I've got enough money, I can buy my way out of this problem. I'm fine. He says your silver and gold aren't going to save you. For in the day of the Lord's anger, for the whole land will be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. You know, back then, if you think about the timing. Uh, Josiah at the time was paying a large sum of money every single year to the king of Assyria so that he wouldn't get taken over by them. And that's what they would do. They would say, if you don't invade us, we'll pay you. And our silver and gold save us from your judgment, right? But we do that all the time. As people, we think that if I have enough money, I can pay God off. Or I can, if I have enough money, I will be secure from any problem that happens in my life. But there is a time coming, a judgment is coming where wealth isn't going to do anything. It's going to get burned up along with everything else. 
And so the corrupt and the strong, or the, the complacent and the strong and the secure and the wealthy, all these attitudes that we use to feel that we are somehow safe, the prophet is warning us, you've got to lose those attitudes because they're not going to be a protection for you. And then he just goes down and he says, all right, I'm just going to destroy everyone. I will make a terrifying end of all the people on the earth. That's what it says. In fact, it's all the people that live on the land. And so some uh, translators say maybe that just means the people of, of Judah, which happened. Except there's something that the, the prophet then goes on to explain next. And that is this incredible map. And on this map, he explains everyone. And he talks about this. In the very first one, he says the Philistines. And you might not be able to see it, but it says Philistines right there on the corner there. And it says, what sorrow awaits you, Philistines who live along the coast and lands of Canaan. For this judgment is against you too. The Lord will destroy you until not one of you is left. He will destroy all of the Philistines. And we think about in the Old Testament history how the Philistines are always the big bad guys, right? They're always on the wrong side because they're fighting against God. And he says, this is it. There's going to be no salvation there. They will be completely destroyed. There will be no Philistine. And there were five cities. And it talks about the destruction of four of them in particular. What about the fifth one? That one already was destroyed. And so that passage, it just it talks about there will be nothing left of them. Then he talks about the next thing. It says, now surely as I live, uh, I, says the Lord of heaven armies, God of Israel, Moab and Ammon will be destroyed. Destroyed as completely as Sodom and Gomorrah. And so you see where they're at, and you think, why Sodom and Gomorrah? That's an interesting thing. Well, understand that uh, the ancestors that from that started Ammon and Moab, they were descendants of Lot, and Lot was a guy who lived in Sodom, and God called him out before he torched the city, and Lot ran to a cave with his daughters because his wife looked back and turned into salt, which is a crazy thing, and. They ran into this cave and they lived in a cave from a city. They lived in a cave for the rest of their lives. And I think that if we lived in a city that got torched like that, you probably wouldn't want to go outside much either. And from that cave, his daughters got him drunk. And then he had children with his daughters. And those were the people that started the Ammonites and the Moabites. That's where they came from. And so from the very beginning of their society, Sodom and Gomorrah was a big part of their heritage. For these people, and God says, I'm going to destroy you just like I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That would have meant something, would have spoken loudly to them. And God says, and we look about Sodom and Gomorrah, where is it? Don't know. Got torched, right? Gone. And we see that God says to them, they're going to be completely destroyed. Then he talks about the Cush that would be down there where uh, Ethiopia, some Bibles translated Ethiopia. Uh, it says, you Ethiopians will also be slaughtered by my sword, says the Lord. That was a pretty short little one, but the, they're going to get rid of them. And then he talks about, then, of course, big, bad Nineveh. And he says, as the Lord uh, will strike the lands of the north with his fist, destroying the land of Assyria, he will make its great capital Nineveh, a desolate wasteland, parched like the desert. Now, this wasn't God's only prophecy against Nineveh, obviously, um, but he sure brought it in. So God talks about, I'm going to destroy all of these different places. And you say, why would he just pick out those nations? Well, if we look at all those different places, we know that there is one to the north, one to the south, one to the east, one to the west. God is, it looks like a, a big compass, right? With Israel, Judah, in the middle. And God is saying, it doesn't matter where the people are, north, south, east, and west, my judgment is coming. I'm going to just wipe out everybody. That's what he's saying. And he talks about he's going to wipe out um, everybody. 
And then he says, I'm going to wipe out you too, Israel. Now, Hezekiah was in office several generations earlier and the Assyrians were camped around it and they were going to destroy it and it looked hopeless and God saved it. And ever since that time, the people of Judah, all their theologians, came up with this theology that said God will never allow Jerusalem to be destroyed because his temple is here. So it doesn't matter how we do, God won't allow this to happen because of his holiness. And that was a bad theology. And so this prophet, who was a descendant of Hezekiah, steps up and says, wait a second, that's not what God is is about. He's going to destroy the whole land. And yes, he's going to destroy all these other pagan nations around you. But you knew God. He is in your very city. And you will be destroyed. He says, what sorrow awaits you, rebellious, polluted Jerusalem, city of violence and crime. And he talks about why he's going to, first as far as corrupt government that's there. It says leaders were like roaring lions hunting their victims. His judges were like ravenous wolves at evening. The, the government who was there to protect them was devouring this very people. It was so awful and, and corrupt. It's also, he says, he's going to destroy it for its corrupt religion. In verse 4, it says, for its prophets are arrogant liars seeking their own gain. Priests devile the temple by disobeying God's instructions. And there's people that had no fear of God. And he said in the next few verses, he talks about he's going to destroy them for their refusal to repent. He says, but the Lord is still in the city and he does no wrong. Day by day, he hands down justice. He does not fail, but the wicked know no shame. And sometimes we think if God was just here, like in a very physical presence among us, the rest of the world would take notice. And we'd say, well, wait a second. Okay, we see God. So we'll just act a little better because we see him there. In Israel, in Judah, there was a temple. And at that temple was, were sacrifices every single day. As the smoke went up from those, those people in the city, those corrupt judges, those corrupt priests, the, the corrupt merchants, the people that were there, they could look and they could see the smoke and the fire, the consequence of sin, and they didn't have shame. They didn't realize that there was a powerful God amongst them who wasn't okay with wickedness. It, it didn't matter his physical presence. They were going to do whatever they were going to do. And they didn't repent. And God talks about he destroyed these other cities before. He had all his prophets talk about destruction in different cities and it happened. And he says, I thought, I was hoping that you would see me do this and you would recognize that I mean business and you would repent, but you didn't. So your day of destruction is coming. Now that's the hard news. That's, we see the world is being destroyed and we see that location isn't going to save us when Jesus comes back. It's going to be judgment for the whole world. We see that uh, power isn't going to save people. We see that wealth isn't going to save people. Uh, We see that our strength isn't going to save us. We see that this world is really uh, ripe for judgment because we have corrupted every single thing from We haven't taken good care of this earth that he gave us. In fact, we've done a pretty lousy job of even taking care of the physical earth, much less the people on it. We have corrupted government. We have corrupted religion. We have corrupted society. We have misused economics. This world is corrupt to its very core, and it's going to be destroyed. But that's not the end of the story. As uh, as Keith talked about in the communion meditation, we have an amazing God, and there there is hope. And he shows us where that hope is. It's the end of the world as we know it, but 
We're going to be fine. He starts out this is therefore be patient, says the Lord. Soon I'm going to stand to accuse those evil nations, for I have decided to gather the kingdoms of the earth and pour out my fiercest anger and fury on them. If that doesn't make you scared, I don't think anything does. God is going to pour out his fiercest anger. And the earth will be devoured by fire of my jealousy. And Jesus even said that the world was destroyed once by water and next next time is going to come by fire. And he will come. And then you think, well, wait a second. How is that going to make us fine? Why does it say, therefore, be patient? And that word patient isn't like, like, when you tell somebody to be patient, it's not as though they're like putting off something. You're like, you don't give them like a big assignment and say, oh, be patient. It'll happen. Right. You be patient for things that you want. It's like, oh, you're going to get a brand new whatever. And then you're like, oh, I want it now. You're like, no, no, be patient. It's coming. How can God possibly tell us to be patient for the end of the world? Like we're to be looking forward to it with anticipation. How on earth do we have that change? Ah, because we see that we look we look for anticipation for Jesus to come back, because even though the judgment's going to be horrible for the proud and horrible for the arrogant and horrible for the godless. This world is horrible to the righteous. This world is difficult. Jesus said this world hates you because it hated me. He says, this world, you're going to have trouble, but take peace, right? I've overcome this world, and he will overcome this world. This world is hard on the faithful, and so we long for our king to return. And so he says, be patient, it's going to come. No matter what everybody says, and he talks about this, when Jesus comes back, when our God comes, he says he's going to restore a couple things. It's going to be an amazing thing. The first one is our praise. He says, then I will purify the speech of all people so that everyone can worship the Lord together. He's going to undo the curse of Babel. Won't that be crazy? Never before in humanity we've been able to use our, because we misused our language. We misused praise. We praised humanity. But God's going to bring it back. It says we'll have a pure speech all the same again. So that, and here's the reason, so that we can worship the Lord together again. And won't it be an amazing day? No matter where you go, God is honored. For who he is, that wherever we are, we can all stay together. Man, isn't he awesome? And there won't be some jerk out there saying, how dare you say praise the Lord when you're fixing your toilet, right? It's going to be an amazing day. And God's going to purify our speech and we'll have our right praise together. He's also going to restore our place. He says, my sacred people who live beyond the rivers of, the, of Ethiopia will come to present their offerings to me. Uh, remember what happened at Eden? Adam and Eve, they they sinned, and then they were kicked out. First they felt shame, and they lied at first, and then they felt shame, and then they were kicked out. And God sent a sword there so they couldn't come back across those rivers to Eden. He's undoing that. There's going to be no guard keeping us away from his presence, away from his perfection ever again. We will have our place again. And understand in the Jewish mind how the world, uh, time worked in this amazing cycle, the new heaven and the new earth, where God is bringing us back to where he originally designed us that we should have been all along. And we're going to have that place again. The home that we always knew that we were made for but have never been able to find. We're going to come home. That's awesome. Not only that, he's going to, he's going to restore our purity. He says, on that day you will no longer need to be ashamed for you no longer be rebels against me. And I will remove all proud and arrogant people from among you. Won't that be nice? That, that our purity will be back. 
And we're not going to have shame what happened in Adam and Eve, right? They, they, they sinned. And the first thing they did is they covered themselves with shame before God even brought judgment. And we've been living in the darkness of shame ever since. But a day is coming when God will just remove that. That, that intrinsic desire that we have to shield ourselves from what is right and what is holy. That feeling that we, have, we know that we don't measure up. It'll be gone. And I think that's amazing because when we get to the kingdom, can you imagine forever never feeling that there's a part of my life that I'm afraid that somebody might discover? Never again. That I can be known completely and I can know others completely and I can love them and be loved. It's going to be an amazing day. And not only that, he's going to restore our protection. He says that the remnant of Israel do no wrong. They will never tell lies or deceive one another. What did Adam and Eve do at the very beginning? They lied. Right? They, they deceived one another. And, and they received a lie. But never again. We're going to eat and sleep in safety. And we don't have to be afraid. God's going to protect us. Can you imagine a world in which there is nothing to be anxious for? Nothing on the horizon to be anxious for, ever? That's, he's going to restore that that perfection that we had there. And then, as he does that, he's going to restore our peace. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy. And the Lord himself, the king of Israel, will live among you. And at last your troubles will be over and you will never again fear disaster. That was almost be a memory verse, but we had to get to the portion that we're going to talk about in a minute to get here. But can you imagine, once there's going to be time that your troubles will be over, there's an old song that we used to sing. I think it came way before my time, but it was a soon will be done with the troubles of the world. You ever heard that one? It's an old spiritual. A soon will be done with the troubles of the world, troubles of the world, troubles of the world. It was sung by slaves who were out there, you know, farming and stuff for their slave owners and being treated horribly. But it gave them hope because they knew there was a day that was coming that there would be no more troubles. And there was a day that is coming that we will no longer be slaves to this world and slaves to sin and slaves to pain and slaves to fear. We are going to be saved. There is a restoration coming for us and we will have peace, real peace at last. And God, then that's the protection, he says here, for the Lord, your God is living among you. And we have heard it said before, if God is with us, who can be against us? And in this world, it is very true. We know that God will not allow us to suffer anything that he's not going to use for his kingdom and his glory and our good. But there's a day coming that we're not going to have to suffer for those things. And God will be here with us. And he will take great delight in you with his gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. And he will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I think of all the verses of the Old Testament, this is one of the most beautiful ones to talk about God's deep love for you. God's not up there saying, I just want to save those awful losers because I'm so great. God loves you deeply. He's going to sing songs over you, like dance around. That's how much he wants to be with you. And isn't it great that we're going to be in, in the kingdom of God, his kingdom, where everything is perfect with a God who wants us there. And who isn't just there saying the whole time, well, you really didn't belong to be here. And we all know it. But who accepts us with open arms. Like we sang in that song, while he is there, no one can bid us to depart. Because he wants us there. He wants us. 
We would fall completely under his protection. And here's a great one, our pride. And on this world of Christians, we always say pride, bad. It's because we mix pride with our own sinfulness. But there is a right kind of pride, a dignity, a respect. And in this world, it's been stripped from us because we stand with the Lord and, and people don't like it. But I like this. He says, and I will deal severely with all who have oppressed you. I will save the weak and the helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away. And I will give glory and fame to my former exiles, wherever they have been mocked and shamed. Isn't it cool to know that all those people that say nasty things about you because of your Lord, there's a day coming that you're going to be like, ha ha, right? <laughs> Is it going to happen? And the things that they try to shame you from are the very things that we'll be proud, we'll be proud of. And we'll be proud of the right things that we stood with him. And God is amazing. God is going to bring about a great day of restoration. And then in that, he's going to restore something else that we have not enjoyed yet, and it's our prosperity. He says, on that day, I'm going to gather you together. I'm going to bring you home again, and I will give you a good name and a name of, of distinction. And I'm going to, amongst all the nations of the earth, and I'm going to restore your fortunes before their very eyes. I, the Lord, have spoken. There's one thing about just being accepted by God. But when he comes back, it's not just going to be a day where he's like, okay, you can come into the kingdom, but you barely made it. And you're just barely going to have anything. He's going to give us prosperity. There's going to be joy. It's like we're going to be given place of honor. Then we know that we really didn't deserve. But God in his goodness and his love, he wants to restore us. That's what he designed us for ever since the beginning because he loves us that much. And then we look at that list and we say, wow. All right. Look at the things. So, yeah, look at all those peas. That was hard to come up with, by the way. I had to get a thesaurus out and everything. But I put them all in peas because I wanted you guys to be able to remember those a little bit. To understand that a day is coming, we're going to be restored completely, totally. No area of this world, no area of our life. The end of the world is not the end. For us, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of everything we've known we've always lived for. So how do we live this for this? Well, you know, this book, there's a little break in it. You have the end of the world, and then you have this good thing. But kind of in the middle where he's talking about how he's going to judge everything, the end of the world, there's this little break, and it says, this is the so what. This is the thing that the prophet asks us to do. This is how we are to respond. And he says this, gather together. Yes, gather together, you shameless nation. Gather together before your judgment begins, before your time to repent is blown away like chaff. And now, before the fierce fury of the Lord falls and the terrible day of the Lord's anger begins, seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and live humbly. Perhaps even yet, the Lord will protect you, protect you from his anger on that day of destruction. When we look at that, there are things that he tells us to do, and this should be our application just for life. And the first one, he says... We've got to humble ourselves together. That word gather, he says gather yourselves together. We think of it like coming together, like coming to church. But the word is actually this. It means to stoop low and to gather stuff to burn, like in a fire. And he's telling the people a very vivid word picture. Get low, humble yourselves together before God. There is no room for pride in humanity. What have we done to this world? We messed it up. We messed it up so bad that God's going to have to wipe it clean with fire to rebuild it. We have nothing to bring to God that can somehow fix this. God's not looking for a new theologian or a new philosopher or a new idea of how we can somehow make this straight. Only he can do it. 
And I have no righteousness in me that gives me the, the right to stand next to him and give him advice on how to do things. My response when I see how badly we've messed up our lives and our world is simply to bow before him and say, this was your creation. I'm sorry. And to get low. And he says to do it together. There is power in the church when we come together as a people and we bow a knee to our God and say, whatever it is that you want, humble ourselves together before God. Stoop low and also this to humble yourselves while there's time. He says before it's blown away like chaff. Do you think about that when they would go out and they would they would go out and they would take the the little papery stuff off the wheat. They would take these forks and they would throw it in the air and then the chaff would be blown away. It wasn't there long. And this world may seem like it's taken a long time for God to bring judgment. But he says when it happens, it's going to feel like nothing. You have no idea when it's going to come. Jesus said it's going to be like the days of Noah. People are going to be out doing their regular business and all of a sudden he's going to show up. We can't put God off forever. There is a time of judgment and it's coming and we don't know when it's going to be. So we can't live like it's tomorrow. Because it may not be. He says there's an there's a, a immediacy for today coming back to God. And the thing is, it's not a popular thing to preach. Yes, he loves us, but he is coming back. And when he comes, it will be too late. So today, today is the day that we need to humble ourselves. Also, it says, humble yourselves with true repentance. Then it says, is, seek the Lord. Who? All who are humble. Right? And follow his commands. That's what humility calls us to do. Seek the Lord. Right? Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. And it says, perhaps even yet, the Lord will protect you, protect you from his anger on that day of destruction. This is our hope. And that means if we're going to really turn to God, we need to really turn to him. No playing footsies with the Almighty. I don't want to be in the shoes of somebody who thought, well, God's not going to do anything either good or bad. I don't want to be in the shoes of somebody who says, well, I would have followed God, but it was just more convenient to do things my way. God's looking for us to give us his entire heart. You're either on the lifeboat or you're not. Right? You're either with him or you're not. And when he comes back, make sure your banner is clear. Because the reality is, is that God loves you, but he's not going to allow the prideful, the arrogant, those that think they can do it on their own, into the kingdom. He's just not. And so we need to humble ourselves with this true repentance, to turn to him truly as our Lord and Savior. And that, I think, if we ask Zephaniah, if he called him up here today and said, Zephaniah, is this what you really would want us to do <laughs> based upon what you wrote? Is this the call? I believe this is what this book is calling us to. And so we can like it or not, but I think we have to do business with God. And so what do we do with that? Well, if you want to take your connection card out and... Uh, and on the back side of it, there are some things that we can do to put those into practice in our lives. And the first one is uh, starting a relationship with Jesus. That's on that side there. If you haven't come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do it while there's time. I, you know, I don't get preach many fire and brimstone judgment uh, things, but this is this book, right? That's what this book is, and that's why God gave it to us. And he reminds us that there is time, and he loves you enough to tell you that, and he wants you to be saved. 
So turn to him now. His grace is here now for you. So turn to him. And if you need to do that, let us know. So we'll talk to you about what does it mean to follow Jesus. We'll explain it to you. We'll come alongside you. You'll have a brand new family of faith that will help you walk in this. And there's a whole bunch of great things that will happen. But you need to, to make that step. So let me know if you need to make that step. Also, maybe what you need to do is memorize Zephaniah 2.3. Because we live in a world that thinks that God's not coming back. That thinks that there is no consequence for, for this life. Maybe to remember what does it mean to really turn to him. To seek the Lord, all who are humble. And to follow his commands. We need to do this. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. And cling to that promise. Perhaps even yet he will protect you. Protect you from his anger on that day of destruction. This is a powerful verse and it reminds us not to get distracted by the things of this world. And to live for what is truly right and to live for him. And to know that he's the one that saves. You need to, to memorize this and stick this in your heart and your, your thinking, your everyday life. That's ah, an amazing, amazing, powerful passage. So maybe that's what you need to do this week. And to memorize that so it becomes this theme that you can remind yourself. Yes, we're living for God and we're saved. And, and it could be the end of the world. It's the end of, for some, but it is really the beginning. And so we can be patient for it. Make Zephaniah 2.3 part of your spirit. Also this, how about just read Zephaniah? And I've kind of explained it for you. It's, it's, it is a, it's, a, it's a fire and brimstone book. There's no other way around it, right? It is. But there's a lot of hope in it. There's a ton of hope. Because the end of the world, as bad as it's going to be for the wicked, it's when God ends corruption. It is like one of the most hopeful, it is like the greatest hopeful book in all of history. It's amazing. Or maybe this is what you need is pray for brokenness. Maybe you know that you should be broken before God, but you don't even know how to do that. You say, how am I do I come to God and, and repentance? I, I like this world the way that it is. I think it's fine. And maybe what you need to do is to go to God and say, you know what? I know theologically that I'm broken, but I don't feel too broken. So help me so I can stoop low, so I can give you the honor that you have. And I will resist the temptation towards pride. Maybe you need to pray for God to reveal your brokenness to you so that you can come to him so he can restore you. Here's the amazing thing. You are broken. Just everybody is. Just some people aren't aren't aware of it. And there's nothing wrong with not being aware of it so long as you're honest with yourself and ask him. And God will help you. And having that humility helps us follow him so that we can take hold of the life that truly is life. How about this? Humble yourself before God. How do you humble yourself before God? Well, that passage, if you would memorize it, will let you know. Right? Follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and live humbly. Don't be all prideful in your do-goodery. Right? To go do it and recognize what we were always meant to do anyhow. And we're doing this because God is amazing and he's sparing us. Now, here's, a, here's an amazing thing for you. Zephaniah wrote this. He wrote it at a time the nation was in free fall. Two years later, just happens that the king turns the country around and humbles himself and the nation humbles himself before God. And what happens? God removes his hand of judgment for another couple generations. God, how we respond matters. And don't think the world is so broken that God's mercy isn't still there and there still isn't room for hope. Humble yourselves before him. We can do it. And maybe that's what you do this week as you look at your own life and you say, how have I been living pridefully? That is, how am I doing things my way and not the way that God tells me to? 
That's what you need to ask yourself. And to live humbly and say, what do I need to change so I can obey and follow the Lord? Not for my salvation, but because he's worthy. Because he's worthy. Maybe there's something else on there that you need to, to mark down. Or maybe there's a prayer request. Let us know. We'll be praying for you this week to this powerful God who loves you deeply, who sings over you, who loves you so much that he came to save you. I mentioned earlier that there was a time, there have been three times in history that God pours out his anger, his wrath. The first one was at the flood, wiped it clean. And, the, and all the fossils laid down in rock layers, you know, all over the earth, have testimony to the level of that destruction. And there's a third one coming. It's going to be fire. And, and it will consume everything that is not righteous and holy. But there was another one that happened where God poured out his anger. And it was written in history. And it happened on a cross. And, and Jesus, God himself, took the full fist of his own wrath on our behalf. So we could be spared the last destruction. And God wants us to be spared. And he said, if we turn to him, anyone who turns to him by faith will be saved. And because of that, we know that we don't have hope for salvation. We have hope for today. We can be spared from his wrath, but he also, he hears us. And he loves us deeply. And a God who's willing to face that kind of wrath, that magnitude of wrath for us, is certainly going to come back and save us. So as we wait for the end, we keep our eyes on the cross. All right, so whatever your decisions are, make them because God loves you. Now we're going to take our, our tithes and our offerings. We bring this message to a close. And as we do that, we ask you to just drop your connection card in, into the basket as they're passed. So let's pray for all of those things now. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. This is a hard message. And we talk about the end and how badly we've messed things up. But God, we, we thank you that you're going to make things right. Help us live with a hopeful anticipation of your coming. Father, help us to stoop low as the right we should. Uh, not because we're so bad, but Father, because you are so good. And God, I pray that you would take these tithes and these offerings, these decisions, these commitments, and you would use them to build your kingdom on this earth as we wait in joyful hope of the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray this. Amen.